Woody Allen once said, life is full of suffering, misery, and loneliness, and it's all over much too soon. It's kind of true, right? Uh, We suffer, the people around us suffer, life has things like death, and destruction, and disease, and disappointment, and disaster, and debt, and other devastating D words, but the reality is there's also beauty and joy and laughter and love and cookie dough and ice cream and cookie dough in ice cream. Come on, somebody like there's all kinds of just amazing things in life. So it can all be very confusing. And what's ironic about all human beings is that when tragedy strikes, we all instinctively ask why? Even the most hardened atheist, when something bad happens in their life, they wonder, why? Why this? Why me? Why now? Why them? Why her? Yet nobody asks the same question about good things, do they? Nobody wonders, why are we having such amazing weather today? Why are we having, why do we have so much money? Nobody wonders or questions the fact that they live in a nice house, but other people don't. Nobody questions the fact that they drive a nice car, but other people can't. Nobody wonders why their family is healthy, yet nobody else's or other people's aren't. We just assume that we deserve all the good things that happen in life, but not the bad things. So when bad things do happen, It doesn't make sense. And with that in mind, I thought we should do a series of messages called When God Doesn't Make Sense. Because regardless of whether we agree on who God is or not, more often than not, He is assigned the blame when bad things happen. And I think we can all agree that it doesn't make sense when mass shootings occur. It doesn't make sense when houses burn down or car accidents take innocent lives. It doesn't make sense that if God is all-powerful, then how come he doesn't stop some of these tragedies from happening? As critics like to say, he's either not all-good or not all-powerful, which that's rather presumptuous on their part because they're assuming that nothing good can come from something tragic. But nonetheless, I think on some level, we all wonder, what is God even doing up there? I'm titling my message this morning, When Not Even Ice Cream Can Help. Like, what? No, you've been there. You've had those days when ice cream can't help. It might not be ice cream for you. It could be cookies or donuts or chocolate. But something happens or a bunch of things happen, and you're like, I just need some frozen custard. Or, you know, I mean, I just need a cupcake from Small Cakes, because that's the best cupcakes in the world. And the good news today is I've got something better Better than small cakes. Way better. Prove it. Okay, if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Meet me in Job chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, it's spelled like Job, but we pronounce it Job. You can also follow a link along here on screen. We just finished a series of messages examining the validity of the Bible, and there is no book of the Bible or piece of literature in the entire world that addresses the great why question, particularly the why question of pain and suffering, with the spiritual and philosophical integrity as the book of Job. So these next three weeks together, we're going to quickly journey through this little book of why wisdom. The narrative of Job is actually written in the form of a lyrical poem, 
It's, uh, in fact, the only one like it in all of the Bible. It consists, first of all, of a conversation between God and Satan, and then a dialogue between Job and his friends, as well as a super unhelpful conversation between Job and his wife. At one point, she says, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, dang, woman, after a life insurance or something, you get out of here. And then uh, finally, there's a climactic dialogue between God and Job, uh, which as I was studying this, I found out there's a pastor in England by the name of Joseph Carroll. Uh, he spent 23 years preaching Job, 424 sermons. Can you imagine? You leave church as a kid, you come back as an adult with kids of your own, and you're like, still in Job. Awesome, like uh, fantastic. So it took him a quarter of a century I'm endeavoring to do in three weeks. Needless to say, it's going to be a long morning. Just saddle up, okay? So, chapter 1, verse 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Oz. I like it already. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. That's why his wife was mad. She had to pump ten kids from her body. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire world. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, who likes to party? We like to party. Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Just a side note, don't ever underestimate what God is doing in the lives of your wayward children. And don't ever underestimate the prayers that you're praying for your kids. God is going to move on your behalf. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but do not harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals, killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. 
while he was still speaking, yet another messenger arrived with this news. The lightning has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep, all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels, killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in the oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness, hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed. All your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up, uh, tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship. What? Worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise, your translation might say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin by blaming God. God, thank you for your word. We just ask you now to do what only you can do and speak to our hearts. Open up our eyes, open up our minds, give us ears to hear. Help us understand what happens when you seemingly don't make sense. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, one of the books I remember having read to me was Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I don't know if you've read it or had it read to you, but as I was looking back on it as an adult, I thought, this kid doesn't know what he's talking about. He wakes up with gum in his hair. Yeah, that's, you know, not an awesome situation. Uh, But then there's no toy in his cereal box. That, you know, that shows the age of the book. I don't know when they stopped doing that, but it explains why these millennials need participation trophies because they haven't, you know, they never got toys in their cereal box. I mean, I get it, but... Uh, My boy Alexander, he doesn't get a snack in his lunch. He has to go to the dentist. He's got a cavity. He has to eat his lima beans at supper. He's just a real piece of work. And I want to tell Alexander, boy, you've got no bills. You've got no responsibilities. Nobody's depending on you for anything except that you'll complain about everything. You're like nine years old. You have no idea what a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day even is. But the reason I bring up the book is because one of the recurring lines within the book is, and no one even answered. Tried to tell people how, was I, how I was feeling, but no one even answered it occurred to me that that's a lot of people's hang up with God. Uh, They pray to him and you go through something difficult, which is to be expected. Life is difficult. And so we call out to God, but no one even answered. In my experience, life would be a lot easier if we felt like God was listening or there or would manipulate circumstances on our behalf, because then I could say, well, I prayed about this and this must be God's will because he did this. And that's exactly what I was looking for. But that's not typically how God works. God works through people. So he'll confirm things in your life through other people. But since we're not actually interested in waiting on God's timing or listening to other people, we like to set the ball in motion and expect God to conform to our will. So we say things like, well, I prayed about this and I asked God to close this door. And if he doesn't close this door that, you know, that he doesn't want me going through, then he will do it. And when the reality is we've already opened the door and walked through it because that's exactly what we want and we're expecting God to push us out of the room and slam the door in our face when if he did that we'd be like God what do you do why you got to be shutting doors in my face 
And we all get confused about, I thought this was what you wanted for me. And so we do something we never should have done, but we justified it on the front end. And then we falsely attribute to God and God's up in heaven looking down like, don't put this on me. You're the one that walked through the door and we all goes Western and we say, hey, I thought I prayed about this. I thought you wanted me in that job. I thought you wanted me to move out. I thought I was supposed to buy that car. You didn't close the door, God. And when we analyze things from our perspective, seems like God doesn't make sense. And no one even answered. Which, what do you do when God doesn't make sense? What do you do when you feel like God isn't answering you? You turn to other things, dead-end things, things like ice cream, things like exercise or alcohol or unhealthy relationships or shopping. I don't know what it is for you. I just know each one of us has something for when we hurt. The great American rock band REM told us way back in 92 that everybody hurts. And so I guess the question before us today is, are you going to hurt with hope or are you going to helplessly and hopelessly hurt? That's what I love about Job. Job has way more happened to him in one day than I pray any of us will ever have to go through in a lifetime. And Job had a day that no amount of ice cream was going to help. And yet, what does he do at the end of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Naked I came into the world, naked I'm going to leave. God giveth, God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job hurt but with hope. So here's my goal for us this morning. I want us to get to that place. When God doesn't make sense, how can we, like Job, say, I still trust you. I still am going to praise your name. I don't know what's going on, but I know you're good. Let me ask you this way. How can the confusion of life push us closer to the creator of life? That's what I want to answer today. How can we hurt with hope, which here's what I think we have to start with. Jot this down if you're taking notes. We have to acknowledge that hurting, even with hope, it still hurts. Hurting with hope still hurts. No matter how spiritual you are, no matter how godly you are, hurting with hope still hurts. As I was thinking through this message, it occurred to me that some of the most faithful saints I know, what makes their Christianity so compelling isn't so much what they've done or what they've accomplished, it's what they've gone through and somehow remained faithful on the other side. That's what's attractive. That's what gets other hurting people's attention. The kind of faith that I'm drawn to is the battle-hardened warrior who's been where I've been and comes out on the other side all bloodied and beat up, and they're like, oh, it's totally worth it. It hurts. I wouldn't have chosen this for myself, and I wouldn't recommend you going down that road, but these scars, they'll heal. God is good. See, actually, the attitude we're going to see throughout this book with Job. Sure, he's going to wonder about why certain things are happening, as we all would. And he's going to question God, as we all do. But at the end of the day, when it seems like God doesn't make sense, he's going to rely on faith. A faith, by the way, that shouldn't even be able to compare to ours, because we have something Job doesn't. But before we can talk about that, we need to talk about some traps, because there's a treasure waiting for you. 
when it feels like God doesn't make sense, but there's also some landmines. There's also some flood tunnels and some red herrings that are trying to distract you, and they're leading you away from where you want to go. You might want to write these down so you can avoid them later on in life. They are morality and cynicism. Morality and cynicism. When you hurt without hope and when God doesn't make sense, where that can absolutely lead you because it's attractive, but where it can absolutely not lead you because I'm making aware of it to you right now is morality and cynicism. Morality says if something bad is happening and you're suffering, if something is happening that doesn't make sense, then you need to go to church more. Then you need to pray more. You should be giving more. You don't have enough faith. Morality says start pushing these buttons and doing all of these things and then God will bless you. It's like the charlatans on TV who get up and say, if you'll just give me $100 today. God is going to bless you tenfold. You just got to have faith. You got to name it and claim it and believe it. And I don't know about you, but I've always wondered if that's how God worked, if in God's economy you gave and in turn he blessed you, how come they're not giving me $100? You know what I'm saying? Like if God's just going to multiply it, they should be the richest people in the world because they're giving money to everybody. But it's not how God works. But whatever, that's moralism. The other approach is cynicism, whereas religious people tend to ask, why is God punishing me? I better do X, Y, and Z. Secular people tend to see suffering as the just the randomness of life. Life is a crapshoot. There's no point to it all. In fact, if a cynic would say that pain proves there is no God. Suffering proves that if there is a God, he's either incompetent or indifferent, so to heck with him. You can see how both approaches, morality and cynicism, lead to the same place. And it's not hope. It's not the praise that we see with Job. It's God, how could you? But I want you to see something about moralism specifically. Look again at verse 8. God says to the accuser, that's what Satan literally means. It means accuser. Have you noticed my boy Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless. He has complete integrity. He fears me and he stays away from evil. And Satan goes, oh, you think he's so great? Hurt him. Let bad things happen to him. You'll see he's not that good. Now notice, God found no fault with Job, but Satan did. I wonder how many times God doesn't find fault with you, but you do, or your accuser does, and it starts you down this dead end path of morality. Well, I better do this and I better do that. And some of you are turning to morality when God already sees you as moral. He already sees you as righteous. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. Now, the reason you should try to live morally and the reason you should try to have integrity is not because of something that you'll get from God, but because rather righteous living is the only appropriate response to what's been given to you. That's why I love the Bible, because the Bible doesn't tell me I have to do anything. It tells me I get to because of all what's already been done. It tells me the reason I should forgive is because I've already been forgiven. It tells me the reason I should love is because God first loved me. It tells me the reason I should serve 
is because Jesus served me. The reason I should give is because God so loved the world that he first gave. In other words, we don't give to get. We give because we already got. That's where real morality should take you. Not because you want to be an earner, but because you're already a receiver. Now, when it comes to cynicism, surely you can see the dead end that cynicism is. I've never met a courageous cynic. I don't know about you, but I've never met a hopeful skeptic. In reality, cynic is the role Satan takes on. Look at it. God says, Job's my boy. Satan's like, I'd be your boy too if you gave me everything. And God's like, you're so dumb. You used to have everything before I kicked you out of heaven. And Satan ignores all that and he says, hurt him. Hurt him and he will curse you to your face. You see the cynicism? Yet if Job had to curse God to his face, that would imply that God meets his people face to face. And he's around. And he's present. And he's personal. That's crazy. What's even crazier is God agrees. He says, very well, you can attack his possessions, but not his person. And Satan leaves and does all these mean, horrible, cruel things, bad things to Job. Pay attention to that. God is so confident in Job's ability to handle losing his possessions that he allows Satan to take them. That should be encouraging to you because God might be more confident in you than you are in you. God might have more faith in what you can handle than you have faith in what you can handle. Somebody came to church today to hear me say, stop being a glass half empty person. You should be the most optimistic person around because God's on your side. But let me also take a moment to point out something that's just remarkable in this story because it's unique to Christianity. Because at first glance, this is a horrifying story, isn't it? Like, what in the world? Are God and Satan playing games with Job? Why would God even allow this? It seems not to be very loving. It doesn't seem to make sense. But that is to totally miss the brilliance of this encounter. This little interaction between God and Satan is dramatically getting across a profound philosophical point, and that is the irregular relationship between God and and evil. No other philosophy, no other world religion, no other belief system has this particular view that God is not a perfect balance of good to evil or glory to suffering. He isn't yin and yang. What do I mean? Well, notice it's Satan's idea to do all of these bad things and they should all happen to Job. God doesn't come up with the idea. Satan does. And Satan is the one patrolling the earth, looking for someone to devour. And he is the one who thinks up all of these mean, horrible, cruel things to do to Job. And then he goes and does it. Only with God's permission. So keep in mind, when God made the world, he made it perfect. He didn't make natural disasters. It wasn't a world in which tornadoes came and fires came and gobbled up people's houses and killed everybody in them. It wasn't a place of chaos. Death and destruction are not things God directly made. He made the possibility for them to exist because through disobedience comes devastation, which is why those things are in the world today. But he didn't intentionally create them. 
They are forces of darkness that were unleashed when we turned away from God. So God is not desiring or deliberately creating the suffering that goes into Job's life. Satan is. However, this is very important, and this is my point. God is in absolute control. We don't have Satan and God as two opposite forces fighting against each other, and Satan attacks Job, and God's like, hey, that's my dude, and he starts the choking force, and Satan's like, these aren't the droids you're looking for, and God is like, but I've got all the infinity gems, and Satan's like, but I've got this elf in outer space that created this huge axe, I don't know if you can combine Star Wars and Avengers, but I just did, and I have the microphone, so it doesn't matter what you think, but here God is... And he is in absolute, total control. He allows Satan to do some things, but not others. He puts limits on what Satan can do, but God is always the one in charge. Now the question that you're all thinking, and I'm thinking, is why does God allow this? Talk about when God doesn't make sense. But here's the answer. God only allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. He only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. Satan is bringing evil and suffering into Job's life, but he can't get the result that he's trying to get. What does Satan want? What are the results that Satan wants in Job's life from all this suffering? He wants him discredited. He wants him exposed as a fraud, right? He's not that good. Take all of his stuff, but it doesn't happen. In fact, you don't even have to read the rest of the book to know what doesn't happen. You know Job isn't discredited because here we are, thousands of years later, all gathered together studying Job's life. Job is one of the greatest examples of bravery and courage within the history of the world, and millions of people have had their lives changed because of him. So yes, Satan was allowed by God to bring evil into Job's life, but God hates evil. He's against it. He didn't create it, and he yet he permits it. What I'm trying to help you understand is that he permits Satan to bring evil into Job's life only in such a way and only in such an amount that it actually completely defeats Satan's intention. And what this is telling us is two things. First, we're being told that God hates suffering and evil, even though he's entirely in control of it. So this is telling us that God and the devil are not equal forces battling it out in the cosmos. But secondly, we're being told this is probably how the same way how God works in our lives. So you might be going through something incredibly difficult right now. Marriage problems, financial problems, health problems, job problems, friend problems, addiction problems, all of the above problems. I don't know what it is. I just know you're asking, likely, why is God permitting this to happen? And the reason I came to church today was to tell you he permits evil and suffering to come into your life only to the degree that it defeats the actual intention of Satan for you. He allows bad things to happen only to the degree that it will make you a great person. What's so intriguing to me about this story and this account is Job never finds out about this. Do you know that? Throughout the entire book, Job never hears about this conversation between God and Satan. He has no idea why he's suffering. 
If you'll read through the entire book, which I would encourage you to do since we won't be able to, when you get to the end of the story and God finally does show up and begins to speak to Job, he never once brings up this first chapter. He never says, now listen, Job, I want you to know, and I realize this has been hard for you, but I want you to know for the rest of time, for the rest of history, you will be the object of one of the greatest pieces and works of literature. Your model and example is going to change millions upon millions of lives for trillions upon trillions of eternal years. And so you can see in the end, it's all going to be worth it. God never says that. You know what he says when he shows up? Who do you think you are, Job? I'm God, and I know what I'm doing. And see, the moralist in you says, oh, the reason you're suffering because you're not living right. And the cynic of you says, oh, the reason you're suffering is because life is a crapshoot and God must be out to lunch. And in both cases, people are trying to make sense of the nonsensical. The only sense that we can acknowledge is that hurting with hope still hurts. Even if you get your answer, It doesn't take the pain away. And in reality, if God would have shown up to Job and told him why he's going through it all, and all this good is going to come out of it, and millions of people are going to have their lives affected, Job would still choose not to go through with it. We all would. Because we would still rather have our kids and our stuff and our possessions. And that's because we feel like we know ourselves better than God does. And if we learn anything from Job, it's that God has more faith in you than you do. What the Bible actually calls you to do is to serve a God, even though you'll never know why, just like Job never knew his actual reasons for why he was suffering. Why does God want that from you? Because the only way to be sure if you're serving God for himself, rather than from all the good things you're getting out of it, is to lose what you've received. Because if you build your life on things, if you say the thing that makes me who I am is because I've worked hard and I have this money and I have this position and I have this name and I have this achievement and I've done all these things and I am this sexuality and if the uttermost foundations of your heart and happiness are your things and who you are, suffering will be pulling you away from the foundation of your happiness. That's what suffering is. Suffering is always taking away something important to you, some earthly thing. So if you build your life on things, suffering can only make you sadder and madder and worse and worse. Therefore, you hold on to mystery. You do not try to get an answer, and you stay in a relationship with a God you can't control with the knowledge that there's hope for your future. All the while admitting Hurting with hope still hurts. And so cynicism and moralism are both dead-end explanations. The reality is, and this is difficult to understand, but the reality is if you want to be a real human being, if you want to truly be a compassionate person, and if you want to live a life of integrity and principle, you have to learn how to love God for who He is. And you have to learn how to love his people for who they are. And guess what? The only way that's going to happen, almost always, the only way you're ever going to learn to love God and his people for who they are is through suffering. The only way for God to make Job into a man of greatness was to have him suffer and not know why. And the only way for God to develop his character in you is to allow you to go through some things you don't understand and not know 
Why? I've had people say to me, well, uh, I could handle this if God would just show me exactly why. If he would just come in and say, oh, you're suffering now, and this is terrible, but in five years this is going to happen, and it's going to be worth it, and then in ten years this is going to happen, and it's all going to be totally worth it, then I'd be able to handle it. But listen, if that were true, then you'd be serving God for the things you were going to get out of it. You'd be manipulating God for answers. There can't always be an answer to the why question, or you'll never become the kind of person God wants to make you. So morality isn't the answer. Cynicism isn't the answer. What is? What's the treasure that's better than a red velvet cupcake? Well, what does Job do? On the day that not even ice cream could fix, on the day that his children die, and his livestock are stolen, and his crops are stolen, and his servants are murdered, on the day he literally loses everything, what does Job do? He tears his clothes, he shaves his head, and he ugly cries. This is not a pretty scene. The mascara is all running, there's snot coming out everywhere, there's Kleenex all over the floor. And so is that what we're supposed to do? Start ripping up our clothes and yelling and shaving our heads, looking like Natalie Portman and V for Vendetta? No, I would not recommend that. But it's also why I can say hurting with hope still hers. But what do we do? Put this in your notes. We extol a God we can't control. Extol a God we can't control. When you're going through difficult things, extol a God we can't control. What does extol mean? It means praise enthusiastically. We praise enthusiastically. We praise a God that in our minds doesn't always make sense. Extol a God we can't control. Notice what Job does not say. He doesn't say, these things you've taken from me. They were mine. I earned them. I worked hard for them. These homes, these children, this money. How dare you take these things away from me? It's the same question I asked when I got suffering happened in my life when basketball was my dream and is my entire life and I did everything I felt like God was asking me to do in my senior year of high school, boom, blow out my name. God, how could you? No, what does Job say is said? Naked I came into the world. Naked means vulnerable and helpless. I came in helpless and I'm going to leave helpless. Everything I have was on loan from God. God gave these things to me. They are a gift of His grace. I didn't earn any of it. See, the lie of Satan is if you give yourself to God, He'll crush you. You won't be happy. He's keeping good things from you. You can't trust God. God doesn't really love you. That's the lie of Satan. It's the lie that sank into the hearts of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and it has sunk into the heart of every human being since. But the reason you can praise God, and I'll close with this, the reason you can praise God no matter what happens to you is because centuries later, after Job, Satan assaulted another innocent sufferer who died naked, who died crying out, Why, my God, have you forsaken me? And he too got no answer. That's your proof. You Job's out there, 
you people who are suffering and have no idea why, when Jesus died on the cross for you, that proves Satan was an absolute liar. Because God in human form was willing to love you just for who you are. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He didn't get anything out of it. Jesus already had everything He could ever need in glory. He has millions of angels worshiping Him. Why did He choose to love us? Because He was going to get something out of it? Like what? He couldn't get anything out of it. No, He loved us for who we are. So you should love Him for who He is. Jesus Christ suffered not so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that when we suffer, we could become like Him. That's what's at stake for you. God might have more faith in you than you do in you. Hurting with hope still hurts. You need to acknowledge that. But you also need to know God is good. And He has something better for you in this life or the life to come. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the opportunity we have to even come and gather in this place. Thank You for loving us no matter what. God, we don't always know what You're trying to accomplish in our lives. I don't know how each one of you came in this morning, but I know there's difficult things in this room. I know there's infidelity. I know there's money problems. I know there's cancer. I know there's kids who are sick. I'm just asking you right now to surrender these things before God. You don't have to try and make sense of them, and they're still going to hurt. But God's got something. He is in total control. And you need to trust that. And in a few moments, we're going to praise a God that we can't control. And some of you have come in this morning, and you've been going to church your whole lives, and you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. And said, no, I believe that God is good, that he's got something for my life, that he's going to forgive me of my sin, all of my sin, past, present, and future. And you've been living your life your own way, and you're just coming in here hurt and broken. And I want to give you a chance to leave this place changed and new. The Bible says that that's what's at stake for you when you put your trust in Jesus. You were once dead and now you're alive. You can run from the grave this morning simply by saying, God, I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died for me and that he rose from the dead. Please forgive me. Sorry I've lived life my own way. Even if I don't make sense of this life, help me live it for you because you're worth it. Because you gave me life. God, we love you. We praise you. We just ask you to encourage us, fill us up as we praise your name.
for all that you've done for us and all that you continue to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.